We started Hope School this past September with 120 students, which by October was 180 students. So we have a great group of teachers. We have more than 30 locals, as well as six foreign teachers. In addition to the teachers, we have some great support staff at the school. One of them, whose name is Joy, she is from a social class of people here. They're maintenance people, they're janitors, housekeepers, they're often taken and abused and you see this people group with their head down because they're managed by fear and they're routinely beaten. And Joy herself had been human trafficked to this city. I came here as a Muslim and racism is, I would say, of the highest level here. They believe that we are like slaves. We don't have equal rights with the citizens. And sometimes it's really sad and painful that they treat you as if you are not a human. When we started the school, we thought, how can we be a light in the midst of that? And it was Carrie's idea, we should bring them in, but not just give jobs doing maintenance and cleaning, but let's call it the guest services team. We give them training of how to engage with everyone that walks through the door who we believe has a unique God-given identity and greet them by name. So this has elevated them to a role of dignity. Yeah, I feel like there's, you know, you pick your battles sometimes and this is one I'm willing to fight for. My role at the school is to lead the hospitality team. We represent how we bring joy to the kids, how we make them happy, how we bring joy to people around us. This people group has the darkest skin color, so when parents come and drop their kids off, they know, oh, this is not the normal color of a person uh, that should be greeting my kids. And so everyone that's driving by on the street sees that we have elevated this group of people and that's who we stand for as a school. They see themselves as a group of now 12 as a missionary team. And that's not why they came to this country. They came to this country to work, to send money back to where their families are living, but God has called them as a missionary team. And someone will say that we are the perfume of hope. We bring light and joy. The school is really a wonderful place because not just the kids coming there to learn, even the adults, they come there to learn. Because I have seen this school transform even some of the locals in this place to becoming better people. They have seen what the school represents, which is hope, not just for the kids, but for everyone that walks through the gate. Oh, my dream for Hope School to produce leaders of tomorrow 
that in the nearest future this be a nation one for Christ and secondly this racism will be gone and I always say no matter the persecution I will continue to follow him because in him I am safe in him I have comfort in him I have peace and in him I have joy there are times when I am not thrilled about having to go talk after watching something like that that was powerful uh, that was a powerful story I'm so glad that Joy was courageous enough to share her story with us if you don't know what those videos are about uh, every Christmas, uh, Chapel Street Church wants to partner with one of uh, what we call our Serve the World partners, uh, missionaries and organizations around the earth that we support, uh, and we want to highlight one of them, and we want to contribute generously, as generously as we can, to support what they're doing. And so this year, we're partnering with Doug and Carrie, uh, who are uh, leading Hope School in uh, what we're seeing is a war-torn African country, uh, and it's a dangerous place for them. It's a difficult place. But uh, God is doing some remarkable things in them, through them. And we've just had one of those stories. Uh, uh, so again, so grateful that she would share that story with us. Uh, and so if you would like to be a part of contributing, giving, would love for you uh, to uh, do that. Again, again we want to be as generous as we can. We've got a pretty lofty goal. We would love to, to raise this year $500,000 for Hope School. And just a few details about this school. Uh, they currently have 200 students uh, but with this contribution, they'd be able to take that to 1,500 uh, and really make a dramatic impact in their community. Uh, and so we are going to be doing this the whole month of December. We want to give everything that we can. We'd love for you to be praying for this as well. Even if you can't give financially, pray. Pray that God would provide, uh, that he would grow his work uh, through Doug and Carrie. Uh, and that's what we're going to do right now. We'd love for you to just pray with me that as we do this together as a church family this Christmas, that we would see God show up and do remarkable things. Let's pray. Father God, thank you. Thank you that again and again you invite us as a church family to be a part of what you're doing in the earth. Lord, we are forced to admit that we are a small church in a corner of the world that not everyone knows about. And yet you, the God of the heavens, sees fit to invite us to be a part of some of the most important things that you're doing in the earth. And God, we want to step up to the challenge that you've given us. Give us courage, Lord. Give us conviction, Lord. I pray that you would provide uh, through our church family what Doug and Carrie need to continue their work. Lord, that they would be able to increase the capacity of Hope School. They'd be able to continue to transform their community. Uh, and God, that we would see your kingdom grow and expand. And we think particularly this morning of joy, Lord. We ask for your blessing to rest on your daughter. Lord, thank you for her faith and her courage. Thank you for how you are using her to make an impact in the world. Lord, we pray that she would experience her namesake this morning, Lord. Even on another side of the world, in a different time zone, Lord, that right now she would know your joy, Lord, as her church family, her brothers and sisters pray for her. We ask in your name. Amen. Well, again, if you uh, want to learn more about that, we'd be glad to chat with you about it. Uh, you can always give uh, through our website, or if you're having challenges with that, come talk to us. Uh, we want to make sure you get connected. The details are there on the screen. You can do it through your app as well or by scanning the QR code on the, the back of your seats. Uh, we have those QR codes around our campus as well. 
Uh, well, a, a few months ago, I bought myself a new car. It was the first time I've done that in a while. Um, and uh, I got a Mitsubishi Outlander. And before I bought a Mitsubishi, I knew that that was a well-known brand of car, but I had never seen a Mitsubishi car on the road, ever. I don't know why that was, but uh, so I was a little hesitant. I was thinking, well, is, this, is it a good car? I've never really seen people driving Mitsubishis. And again, maybe you're thinking, I've seen plenty. I, I had not. But here's what happened is when I bought that car, all of a sudden, I saw them everywhere. Right? Have you ever experienced that? You go and buy something or you, uh, you think about something, all of a sudden you're seeing it everywhere. I remember that this happened to me another time in my life when, you remember when PT Cruisers were like the go-to car that was just everywhere, right? Now I don't see them anywhere. I guess it's over and done with. But yeah, so even my son, after we bought the car, little Jonathan, he's seven years old, he, he started noticing, hey, look, there's, that's the car. That's our car right there. So this, this phenomenon is known as the Bader-Meinhof phenomenon. And what it is, is it's, it's been studied by psychologists. It's this thing that happens in us that when we pay attention to something, all of a sudden we see it everywhere. We feel like it's, it's kind of multiplied. And it hasn't actually multiplied. Nothing's happened. It's just that because our attention is on it, all of a sudden we're seeing it in the places it had always been that we had never noticed. And the reason why that's a, a good thing for us to think about this morning is because what we're doing in this whole Christmas season is we're talking about the spirit of Christmas. And the hope is that we would be able to change our attention and see where God's spirit, the Holy Spirit, has been at work throughout the whole Advent story. Because he, I think if we're honest, he's, he is a character that we don't really think of much in the Advent story. We think about Jesus coming, we think about the Father sending him, but the one member of the Trinity that we sometimes forget about, not only at Christmas, but all the time, is the Holy Spirit who is absolutely integral to what God is doing throughout his story and throughout the earth. And so we want to change our attention. We want to see where the Spirit of God moved in the Advent story. And I hope as we travel through this, you'll kind of have the Bader-Meinhof effect, that you would see him and think, wow, I'd never noticed that. I never took, paid attention to that. It's an opportunity, I think, for us as a church to be kind of drawn in to the beauty and the majesty of the Christmas story. Because what I think the Holy Spirit is, is, is he is the director of the whole event. The Holy Spirit is the one orchestrating events, moving people into position, getting everything ready for the arrival of Christ. He's the one that, last week when we talked about Isaiah 11 and we talked about this story of the stump, that hundreds of years before the birth of Christ, prophets of God would talk about one who was to come, who was going to grow out of what seemed like a dead stump, this thing where there was no life, there was no hope, that Christ would grow out of that, the Messiah would come out of that. The Holy Spirit was the one who revealed that to them. He was the one who prompted them to write down what they've given to us. He was moving this forward the whole time. Just a reminder, last week we ended off with Isaiah 11.1. 1. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And this week we're going to pick up where that shoot is beginning to poke its head out of the stump. We're picking up in a moment uh, where we finally see God's plan beginning to become visible above the surface. We're going to do that by looking at the story of John the Baptist's birth, or I should say John the Baptizer. He was an incredible man. Listen to what Jesus says about John the Baptist. This is in Matthew 11. Jesus is, is an adult. He's preaching. He's doing his ministry. This is what he says about John the Baptist. This is he of whom it is written, behold, I send my messenger before your face who will prepare your way before you. And then he says this, Truly I say to you, among those born of women, there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. Could you imagine Jesus Christ saying there is no one who has ever been born 
who is as cool as John. That's the kind of thing that I would love for Jesus to say about me, right? And when Jesus says that about someone, we should all pay attention and say, well, who is this guy? What's his story? Where does he come from? How did God use this person? Because if this is someone that God is seeing is one of the greatest men that have ever been born, we should pay attention. So I want to talk about three things from the birth of John today. I want to talk about spirit-filled prayer, spirit-filled joy, and a spirit-filled purpose. Let's talk first about spirit-filled prayer, spirit-filled prayer. Now, I, I used to work uh, at DeVry University. I was an academic advisor, but the, the way they would do that with an online university is you do it mostly over the phone. Uh, and so I was one of those guys that you have to call up when something goes wrong in class or you need to get your financial aid sorted out. You would call me up, I'd, I'd answer the phone, and then inevitably we get to the point that no one likes on that phone call what I've got to put you on hold so I can go do some stuff. How many of y'all have like a part of your soul that just fractures every time you get on a phone with someone and you hear that hold music? And strangely, have you ever noticed how they all have the same hold music? Like, I feel like there's room for a business to start selling better hold music out there, right? You could make some money off that because it's always the same tune. It was for us. And inevitably, I'm, I'm on there probably sometimes for a significant amount of time and I come back and you can hear the frustration in the, in the student or the family that have called up because they've just been sat in there listening to this music over and over thinking, what's he doing? Where's he at? But behind the scenes, I knew from, and I had felt that, but when you start being on the other side of that call, you realize there's all kinds of things going on. I'm looking up financial aid details. I'm talking with the counselors. I'm talking with the teachers. I'm trying to figure things out for you. Now, the people of Israel at this time in history, they had been on hold for quite a while, it seemed. They felt like the whole music had been playing for far too long. And they were starting to lose hope. They were starting to doubt. They knew this message that God had given them for the prophets, that he was going to set everything right, that he was going to send a king who would fix everything that's broken. But they felt they'd been waiting so long, they were starting to lose hope. But what they didn't know is that on the other side of that whole music was a God who was at work the entire time, who was moving who was orchestrating events, who was raising up people to fulfill what he had called them to. God was on the move. This is what we read at the start of Luke's gospel. Luke chapter one, five through 10. It says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abijah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron. Her name was Elizabeth. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and the statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. Now while he was serving as priest before God when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. I want to pause for a minute because we read that, and that's an interesting story. We're curious, but there's a lot of stuff happening there that we, in our day and kind of our context, we don't necessarily understand everything that's happening there. I want you to understand a little bit more about who Zachariah was, who Elizabeth was, and what's happening at this moment in Luke. We're told that Zachariah and Elizabeth are both descendants from priestly families. Zachariah comes from a line called Abijah, and then Elizabeth, she comes from a really significant family. She comes from the line of Aaron. If you remember Aaron, he was the first high priest in the history of Israel. So these are two kind of regular Jewish people, both from priestly line. They're not overly significant. They're not overly wealthy. They're not overly important. They're just regular people trying to live out what God's called them to do. We're told that they were honor, honorable and blameless in the eyes of the Lord, righteous before God. 
So there was, these were good people, salt of the earth. And what Zechariah's job was to do, to do was to go and be a priest in the temple. And in this particular occasion, we find that Zechariah has been invited to do what was the most important job in the temple, which was to offer incense. This was something that was so significant that a priest could only do it one time in their entire life. After that, it had to be offered to other priests. And it was so significant that rather than just kind of choosing people in order, they would cast lots for it, right? They would try and randomly select who was going to do it so that there would be no ego or anything like that. So Zacharias comes to do that. And the reason that they burn incense is it was a symbol to all of Israel, to everyone in the nation, we are coming before the Lord to ask him for what? For the Messiah, for him to send the one who can set everything right, that he would hear the cries of his people, that he would hear the hopes of his people, and that God would act, he would do something. And perhaps no no other point in history were they quite as desperate as they were right now. Rome had come in, had bulldozed their country, had kind of taken over everything. It was a mess, there was taxation, there was suffering, there was brokenness. And so they would do this faithfully, they would come in and they would ask God to move. And Zechariah would go in. He was the only one allowed to go in to burn incense. Everybody else waited outside, but everybody else would get on their knees. And while Zechariah was inside, they would all be praying. Multitudes of people praying outside of the temple while Zechariah is inside. So Zechariah goes in. He wants to do his job. He's a faithful man. He wants to pray. But something amazing happens. Picking up verse 11. There appeared to him an angel of the Lord standing on the right side of the altar of incense. And Zechariah was troubled when he saw him, and fear fell upon him. Just if, if you don't realize, every time an angel shows up in Scripture, by the way, people are terrified. It's not like a beautiful man with a halo and wings. It's, it's, it's terror, sheer terror. People are terrified. That's what happens to Zechariah. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. You will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. He must not drink wine or strong drink and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to their Lord, their God. He will go before him in spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. What this moment's about is a God who answers prayer. Everybody in this moment is praying to God, they're seeking to God, but you know what they weren't expecting? God to answer. They become a little dulled by their doubt, by their hopelessness. They're shocked that they come in, they do this, what they've done so many times before, and all of a sudden, here is God audibly speaking to them through an angel, speaking specifically to Zechariah. One of the pastors that I listened to, a guy called Alistair Begg, he said that God was getting ready to turn on the lights. God was getting ready, we might say, reverently for Christmas Day. All these hopes, all these prayers that have been lifted up before God, now it's finally happening. And what God is doing is he's reminding Zachariah, he's trying to remind the entire of the people of Israel, I see you, I have heard you, I'm working on your behalf, I'm moving on your behalf. But Zechariah struggles with this. He's waited so long. He's old. One of the things that Zechariah and Elizabeth had no doubt prayed for was a child. They were advanced in years now, probably 60 plus. Give no pope on that. But how many times do you think that they prayed for that? How many times did they ask God, please, Lord, please give us a child? 
Zechariah had waited a long time. Israel had waited a long time. Just so you know, prior to this, there was 400 years of what's called the prophetic silence. And what that is, is this time where there was no prophets being raised up. No one knew was coming on the scene and saying, I've got a word from the Lord. It just felt silent. 400 years. It's 2022 today. If we went back 400 years, that would be 1622. That's 150 years before there even was a United States. Do you think about what it would be like to wait that length of time? Perhaps some of you this morning, you feel that every year when we read the Advent account, we read this beautiful story of a Savior coming, of a light entering into the darkness, and you kind of ask yourself the question, but where were you for me? hear this story every year, but I have waited and I've waited. I've waited for you to come into my broken family where there's been so much pain. I've waited for you to come into my personal suffering, my illness where I've needed healing. I've waited for you. I've waited for you. I've waited for you and I can't see you. I haven't heard you. This moment's about two things for us when we read this story. It's one to remind us that that experience, that pain of waiting and waiting and waiting It's common in the Bible. There are many people in the story of God who felt exactly that same way, who felt the burden of waiting and hoping and feeling like they can't find God in the middle of the mess. But it's also about something else, something much more important than that. That there are no occasions where God doesn't hear you. There are no occasions where God doesn't see you. There are no occasions in which God isn't working for your good and for your betterment, and for your hope and joy. God is always at work in the darkness, always. You know what's interesting is the name Zachariah, do you know what it means? The name Zachariah means the Lord remembers. The Lord watches over you. Do you know what Elizabeth means? It means my God is an oath, my God is faithful. Every morning these two people would wake up and they'd say their names to each other and they would know in their culture, they would know that they're saying, Hey, Zachariah, the Lord watches over you. Hey, Elizabeth, my God is faithful. Every day they would remind each other of who God is without knowing it. That's exactly who he was the entire time. And now here God shows up to remind them himself. He picks up the story of the stump with two people, by the way, who had been unable to have a child. They were barren. Elizabeth's called barren. Kind of like a stump that had been cut off. Didn't think anything else was going to grow from that family line. And yet here, in that personal stump, even there, God shows up and says, I'm going to bring life. I'm going to bring hope where you have grown tired and weary. They are the perfect illustration of what God is going to do on a far grander scale. Tells, the angel says that John is going to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And I want you to understand how remarkable that was. That's, not, that's something that we talk about a lot in our day. Right? We talk in church about being filled with the Spirit. It's kind of a, a, a language and a vernacular that gets tossed around. Sometimes we don't even know what it means, but we say it a lot. But in this day, this was remarkable. There had been prophets that have been called from the womb, but never filled with the Spirit of God from the womb. This is a moment in history. With Zechariah hearing this, it, it sounds like God is doing something radically different than he's ever done before. It would have been shocking. Last thing to mention here before we move on is Zechariah struggles to believe all this. We've, we've already touched on that. But there's consequences for that for Zechariah, unfortunately. Because what Zechariah says, he says, how can this be? How can you do this? 
I'm an old man. My wife's old. How can we possibly have a child? Now, the reason why that's particularly ironic is, isn't there a story in the Bible already about why God did that very thing? And this is a priest. This is a man familiar with the scriptures. And so God's a little upset that his priest would forget what he has been doing for a very long time. And so what he says is, Zechariah, I need you to learn to listen and not to speak. So you're going to be silent for the next nine months. So he mutes Zechariah. Can't talk. He wanted this people to listen to this good news that he had for them. He knew that there was going to be a lot of brokenness, a lot of pain, a lot of waiting. And friends, God knows that in your heart this morning, there's a lot of pain from your waiting. There's a lot of anxiety from your waiting. And God wants to speak to you. He wants you to listen to the hope that he has for you. The whole of the Advent season is an occasion for us to be silent and to listen to what God wants to say. Because he wants to bring us joy. Let me tell you about spirit-filled joy. Spirit-filled joy. So I'm sure that at this point, you and your families are trying to get into the Christmas spirit, the joy of Christmas. Uh, I, I mentioned this last week. I don't like doing it before Thanksgiving. I have a hard rule. No Christmas stuff before Thanksgiving. I want to enjoy that tacky free of the rest of it. But once we're past it, it's all, it's all fair. Let's go all in. I'm for it. Let's put the lights up. Let's put the trees up. So we went, we got our Christmas tree the day after Thanksgiving. A lot of fun. We decorated it with the kids. Got advent calendars. Just so you know, one of our kids has already eaten every single day out of that thing. Um, I'm a little sad about that because I like to steal a few. But uh, we've already gone into Christmas movies. We've done both Home Alones, which... If, and if this is not a staple in your family, I urge you to seek God's wisdom. Home Alone, and Home Alone 2 especially, is maybe the greatest Christmas contribution to movie history ever. Fantastic. Right? We like to make Christmas lists. We like to go get the Christmas candy. We like to do Christmas walks. But you know what the true way to enter in the Christmas spirit is? All those things are wonderful. They're good. They're exciting. All of us have our little lists of things we do. But for the Spirit of God... There's only one thing that he needs to do. Only one thing that he wants to do, and that's to look at the sun. It's to get all eyes, all attention on the son of God's coming. On his goodness, on his beauty, on his majesty, on his power. Spirit of God's greatest joy in this season comes from having us behold and acknowledge the son of God. So it's no surprise that wherever Jesus goes in the Advent story, joy follows. Because the Spirit of God is celebrating. Yes, it's finally here, the moment where the whole world is going to be introduced to the Son. We're told in Luke 1, 39, In those days Mary arose and went with haste into the hill country, to a town in Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard the greeting of Mary, the baby leapt in her womb and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. And she exclaimed with a loud cry, Blessed are you amongst women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. Now, I want to point something out. This is a well-known story. We hear it a lot. But you know what's remarkable about this that we kind of skip over? How does Elizabeth know that Mary's pregnant? She's just greeting her for the first time. Presumably, this is very early in their pregnancies. How would they know about this? It's not like they had email or text with each other. They would visit each other after long times apart. She knew straight away. And what's even more strange about it is the baby that's in utero in Elizabeth's womb also seems to know that something is happening. It's a miraculous moment, an incredible moment where the Spirit of God is revealing joy. Spirit of God reveals joy. 
And I think there's one thing we can't move past is this is a significant moment because God is showing value for two unborn children, for Jesus and for John. He's showing value for Jesus because we're celebrating this life that is in Mary's womb, but also for John because John, despite being in his mother's womb, is playing a significant part in the story here. He's the one that's letting everybody else know what's happening. And so two unborn children are giving recognition and value and importance. And if unborn children's lives are precious to God, they need to be precious to us. They need to be something that we value. Spirit also reveals joy to Elizabeth, though. We mentioned already, how did she know? How did she know that Mary is pregnant? But even more than that, what Elizabeth's specific greeting is, is she doesn't just say, oh, I get that you're pregnant. Wow, that's amazing. She says, my Lord is in your womb. Do you know how many people knew that Mary was pregnant at this point? We could count it on one hand. Very limited number of people. Even more than that, people that understood that the child in Mary's womb was not an ordinary child is basically zero. Maybe Mary. She had a very special encounter with an angel, but everybody else. And yet somehow Elizabeth recognizes the child that Mary is carrying is not an ordinary child. She says, How blessed am I that the mother of my Lord would visit me. Spirit is revealing who Jesus is. And what I want you to understand here is that the Spirit Spirit is revealing the knowledge of who Jesus is so that we can experience the joy of who Jesus is. In Psalm 1611, one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture, I encourage everyone to memorize this. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of Joy at your right hand of pleasures forevermore. It's exactly what's happening here. People are being made aware of the presence of God amongst them, that God is visiting them, that he's here physically with them and it's filling them with joy. A child leaps in his mother's womb. A woman is celebrating and sharing that with Mary. Do you know that God always works to bring joy near to you? I hate when our kids, we, would, we always try and do something fun for them. We want to take them on a little trip. Uh, and they're always screaming at us about getting their coats on or their socks on. Have you, you ever experienced this as parents where you dream up this beautiful trip for your kids? It's going to be amazing. You're like, oh, they're going to love us. They're going to think this is so great. And then you're like, hey, shall we go? And they're like, nah. <laughs> it like hurts you in your soul. You're like, oh, I just want you to experience joy if you could just know what we're trying to do here. Anything that Jesus sends your way, every command, every direction, even every correction and rebuke, it's for your joy. It's because your Father in heaven knows that there is more joy for you and he wants you to have it. He's ferocious about wanting to give you joy. He's passionate about it. God longs for us to experience the joy of knowing him and being with him. And when he sees us trying to find joy in lesser things, things that are empty, it frustrates him. It it, it grieves his heart because God knows that there is more joy to be had. And yet sometimes we struggle to believe that that's who God really is, that that's what he wants for us. We view his commands as burdensome. We think of his teachings as critical or judgmental. But if we could understand that God wants to bring us joy, the things that he asks of us will never be a burden. I've been convicted about that this week myself because as some areas where some good friends of mine have kind of called out some things in me that I was less than enthusiastic about. Nothing terrible, but just, just kind of attitudes and habits. 
and I'm planning this sermon, I'm raised like, okay, I get it. I get it, God. You, you reveal things to me because you want better for me than I want for myself. Because you want to bring me joy. And so what I want to do is I want to trust you, God. I want to trust you that when you ask something of me, it is not a burden. It is not meant to bring me down. It's meant to lift me up and draw me further into the joy that you have for me. Spirit also shares joy in this moment. Because the joy moves from John to Elizabeth to Mary. Joy is not something that's exclusive to one person in the story. The Spirit wants everybody to have a piece of it. It's infectious. You ever been around a joyful person, truly joyful, and not wanted to join in with them? Even when they're frustrated, and you're like, why are they so joyful all the time? In your heart, you're still like, you're kind of bitter, not because they're joyful, but because you want to have a little bit of what they've got. Joy is infectious. True joy is infectious. And sometimes, as the people of God, we forget to share our joy. We fixate on all the things that stress us out, that make us miserable, that make us anxious. We're worried about things. And the one thing that we never spend any time on is the, the greatest gift that we've given, the one thing that's sure and certain and will never change, which is that God is our joy. And when we paint that kind of picture to, to the world, is there any surprise that they don't want to come and be a part of what Jesus is doing? Because we don't portray Jesus as the God that wants to bring joy. Jesus said in John 15, 11, these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. That is who we need to tell the world Jesus is. That is who we need to communicate to the world. That's what Jesus wants for you. That's what he longs for you. Everything he's ever said and done is to enhance and deepen and strengthen your joy. Picture we want to paint to the world of who Jesus is is not that he's judgmental, pessimistic, burdensome, or arrogant. It should humble us. We should get on our knees like Elizabeth. Did you notice that in Elizabeth, she's totally humbled by what's happening. She's saying, I'm so blessed. Why would God visit me? Why would God invite me to be a part of what he's doing? Elizabeth is a picture for all of us. That's how we should talk about our relationship with God. Oh, that he's loved me. That he's seen me. That he wants me to be a part of what he's doing. Who am I that God should choose me? That God would love me? Lastly, I want to talk about a spirit-filled purpose. Here's how the birth of John culminates. Luke 1, 67 through 80. Zachariah, finally able to speak after long nine months, and the first words of his mouth were this. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people. He's raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us, that we being delivered from the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. Who's Zachariah singing about there? It's not John. Who is the horn of salvation from David's house? Who is God visiting his people? It's Jesus. And to our knowledge right now, Zacharias, I mean, I'm sure he was around when Mary visited, but we haven't had any written account of him meeting her or understanding this. So again, what's the Spirit doing? What does the Spirit do every time he shows up in the story of God? Is he showing people who Jesus is? He's revealing Jesus to them. 
The purpose of the Spirit in our lives is always to drive our attention towards Jesus. And so it's no surprise that when Zechariah then tends to his son, this is what he says. He says, you child will be called the prophet of the most high for you'll go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit He was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. All of this story was the spirit driving in his purpose in the earth to make Jesus clear. In every one of the passages we've read today from Luke 1, the angel in the temple, Elizabeth and Mary, and now Zechariah, there's one sentence that is the same in all, filled with the Holy Spirit. And every time someone's filled with the Holy Spirit, it's so that someone around them would see Jesus. Do you know that the calling on every single one of us who call ourselves followers of Jesus is to be signposts to Christ? 1 Peter 2.9 says, You're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his light. was the purpose of John's whole life. If you're a fan of The Chosen, you might have seen the new series came out uh, last weekend. I won't spoil the whole thing. It's in the Bible. You can read about it. But in the second episode of uh, the third season, there's this moment where one of Jesus' disciples, Andrew, he hears that John the Baptist is in prison. He goes to visit him. And he's so anxious about it. He's so tore up. He's about, we've got to get you out of here. What do we do? What should we do? What should we do, John? Do you know what John's reply to him? So well written because John's reply to him, he says, if you want to help me, go listen to him. You want to bless me? Follow him. That's what I want, he says. John 3, when he's an adult, John, this child who was born, he says, the one who has the bride is the bridegroom, the friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him, rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. And then, some of the greatest words ever spoke. He must increase, I must decrease. John, the greatest amongst women born, says, I've got to disappear because I cannot take any attention away from him. He must be the one that's seen. His ministry must be the greatest. John's joy was complete by pointing towards Jesus. In the tender way that he talks about, he says, I, I want the bridegroom to be the head. I want him to have all attention. That's, that's who Jesus was to John, the bridegroom. So the call for us this Christmas is not to just enter into church and tell the story and pray the prayers and miss the purpose. Not to go through the motions. That's what Zachariah was doing at the start of this story. He's going through the motions, going in the temple, praying the prayers, but not truly in his heart, expecting God to hear and move. We want to be like Zachariah at the end of the story, who is so transformed by God's grace towards him, he wants everyone to see and know. And so we are called to prepare the way for his return by praying fervently, sharing our joy, embracing our purpose as signposts towards his goodness, his grace, and in everything, trusting the spirit who's at work in us to make this possible. I'm going to close this morning by doing one thing.
So we're gonna come to the Lord's table. When you came in this morning, you should have received these. If you didn't, just put your hand up. Our ushers will bring one to you. It might seem like a strange thing to do at Advent. It's usually something that we associate with Easter. But I want to tell you why this is so important for us at Christmas. Because this is not just a symbol of Christ's death. It's a symbol of his life. Because what these two things symbolize is his body and his blood. Both of those come from the incarnation. The incarnation is God taking on body, taking on flesh, taking on blood. Being like us in every way. And so when we take this, we remember not only that he died for us and that he gave his life for us, which we should always remember, but also that he came in the first place for us. That he took on life with us. This is not a Chapel Street thing, and so if you are not a regular attender of Chapel Street, we still invite you to come. This is Jesus' table. This is Jesus' message to all of us. So if you call yourself a follower of Christ, what I want you to do is I want you to peel that first layer off to take the small piece of bread in there. Remember that Jesus Christ is the Son of God made incarnate for you, took on a body, who took on flesh for you, to walk beside you, to carry your burdens. Let's take and eat this in remembrance of him. Secondly, invite you to peel that next layer off. Jesus, on his last night on earth, he sat around a table with his disciples and he lifted a cup and he said, this is my blood. It's part of a new covenant poured out for the forgiveness of sins. This morning we drink this knowing that our Savior was born as a child, as an infant in a manger so that he could grow and give himself as an offering for us. Take and drink this in remembrance of his grace towards you. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you for your great love towards us. We thank you that you entered into our world to give yourself for us. Father, I pray that this Christmas season we would not go through the motions, we would not walk into the temple and pray our prayers and go through the services, Lord, blind and deaf. 